Good morning. It's good to be back with you all this week. I'm Ted, if you don't know me, one of the pastors here. And uh, last week was interesting because, as you all know, I was gone in the Air Force Reserves, and, and what I had feared came true. Um, as I was going through the process last year, thinking, boy, that would be bad if I'm gone and uh, a member of our church passes away, or, or Pastor Robert gets sick right before he's supposed to preach, and both things happened in one weekend. But, you know, as I was struggling with it down in Charleston, the Lord quickly comforted me as if he designed that intentionally to show us the substance of who we are and what he's been doing in this church for the past few years. And I'm proud of you all. I'm very proud of this church, how you stepped up to come alongside Kendra Irish and, and her family, and of course, Jared jumping in and preaching last week with uh, three, three hours notice and doing a great job. So thank you. Uh, you know, we might, might be small, but we're a mile deep. And I'll take that any day of the week over the alternative. So thank you. And in April, when I'm gone for a month at Air Force Old Man Boot Camp, uh, Jared's going to preach. And I think this time we'll give him 24 hours notice, and we'll see how he does. I think it'll be excellent. So again, it's good to be back with you all. We're going to be continuing and finishing out uh, John chapter 4. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 4 as we finish the account of the woman uh, at the well, the Samaritan woman. Has anyone here ever, did anyone ever here do the, uh, the, the Christian study, Experiencing God? I uh, remember that, Blackaby. I remember doing that, I did it several times, and one of the things that he has you do, I think it's like week five or something, you look back through your life, past the time when God saved you, and you look for what he called spiritual markers, times where God was working prior to your salvation uh, to plant seeds, to water seeds. And, uh, and as I was working on the sermon this week, I thought about how growing up, granted it was a Roman Catholic household, we didn't read the Bible at home, uh, Christianity never really made the trip back from church each week, but every year without fail as a kid, I would watch the Jesus of Nazareth miniseries. You guys remember that? Like from the 70s, Robert Powell, Ernest Borgnine, and several others. And I watched it, and I looked forward to it as a kid, and it's amazing to think how many seeds uh, the Lord was planting during that time, and of course, several other things in my life, and then saving me at the age of 22. And I, and I mentioned that to bring us to the title of today's passage, The Soul Harvester. Again, we're following through John's gospel, which we've called I Am. We're looking over and over who, who this one is that John presents to us, and today we see him as the soul harvester. I like that language because we don't hear that often. It's kind of weird, which makes us take notice the soul harvester. That's who Jesus Christ is, and we're going to see that uh, today. In fact, let's start off with uh, this passage from Mark 4. This is the, a very forgotten parable. It only appears here in Mark. It's very small. It, it usually gets overshadowed by the parable of the sower, parable of the weeds, but it's the parable of seed growing. And Mark writes there, uh, actually Jesus is speaking, Mark's writing, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Then earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And today we are going to, we're going to look under the hood and see how God works in his kingdom to bring many to faith in Christ. And throughout the Old and New Testament, harvesting is a very common illustration for 
God's work to save his children, both here in this life and then the final salvation when he ushers us into his kingdom at the end of time. So uh, a really excellent passage we have here uh, to look at. But first, I want us to do some review of last week, uh, the, the first 26 verses that Jared covered in his sermon. Because as we, as we jump in, you'll see in a minute, this thing starts off like that. We jump into a moving car. So it's important that we go back. And by way of review, I simply want to remind us of five very important truths that Jesus reveals to the woman at the well. And here they are up on the screen. He tells her back in verse 10 that he is the gift of God. It's funny, we've named all of our kids from you know, Bible names, and I remember the kids asking me, hey, Dad, is your name in the Bible? And I'm like, no, no, not my name. Actually, it is. Gift of God is Theodore. That's what Theodore is translated. So there's my name. Jesus is the gift of God. Second, he tells her this, that he can give her living water. Of course, she doesn't understand that at first. Jesus is talking about eternal life. He, uh, he reveals her marital and relationship history. There's kind of the miracle of the story for her. Uh, and, and it really blew her away, got her attention, which continues into the conversation as she recognizes that he's some sort of prophet. And then we see, I think, the heart of those first 26 verses. He, he gives us an incredible description of the purpose of the new covenant gospel, which is worship in spirit and truth. I asked uh, Micah to start us off today with that passage from Psalm 67, just that idea that, that missions exist where worship does not. The gospel at its very essence and core is about God uh, saving his children, building a, a body of worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. And then finally, and you can see this here, uh, if you look up at verse 26, a mic drop moment for, for uh, the woman Jesus tells her that he indeed is the Messiah. In fact, in your English Bibles, that final word in verse 26 isn't there in the Greek. He is not there. This is one of those passages where Jesus is declaring, I am. And that's a theme, so it's important to talk about that once in a while. I am is the covenant name of God that Moses was given at the burning of bush. I am that I am. Uh, they, we translate that Yahweh. And uh, in Greek, it's a goemi. Ego is I, and me is I am. So it's emphatic. I, I am. Jesus is making a divine statement here of who he is, and it's so important. And that's what leads to verse 27 that we're about to pick up now, and you see her, her action to, to put down the water jar and head back to town. So let's pick right up in verses 27 through 30. This is still the introduction, but it's going to help us to jump into this passage or rejoin it. Just then, so like the next moment, his disciples came back. So right after he reveals himself as the Messiah, his disciples come back from the town. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek to the woman? Or why are you talking with her to Jesus? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So a few things here, and Jared picked up on these last week. But uh, there's, there's three reasons why Jesus should not have been talking to the woman. Again, from a rabbi, a good Jew's point of view. First of all, she's a woman, okay? Uh, rabbinical teaching from this period of time, uh, a famous rabbi said this, it's pretty much a waste of time to talk to a woman, even your wife, much less about theology. Uh, and, and again, Jesus isn't a feminist by today's standards, but he did empower women and bring them back up to their spiritual equality with men. He does it throughout the Gospels, 
and, and here as well. Secondly, she was a Samaritan. She was a half-breed. All right, the Samaritans were between a rock and a hard place because they were half Jew and half Gentile. So the Jews didn't like them because they were half Gentile, and the Gentiles didn't like them because they were half Jew, right? So that was the second reason, and Jerry did a great job explaining that last week. And then finally, she was a, a woman of loose morals, all right? That's why she was coming at noon. That's why she had so many men in her life. She was essentially a prostitute, if you will. Uh, so three strikes, and yet Jesus takes the time to talk to her, cutting right through all of our demographic categories. She leaves the water jar. I would love to take some time to see what you guys think about that. There's so many uh, opinions as to why John included that. Literal. Uh, one guy says that uh, she's essentially saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to be right back, right? Uh, there's even a, a racial uh, divide being destroyed here with the grace of God, possibly. Uh, because again, from her point of view, she hated Jews just as much as Jews hated Samaritans. I'm not going to let a Jewish man drink from my water jar, kind of like and then by the time God's working in her heart, Jesus is working in her heart, she essentially leaves it there so Jesus can have his drink, which is what the whole conversation started with. Or maybe it's symbolic, you know, talking about the old covenant ending and Jesus being the better well. But we could go on and on. I wish we had time to, uh, to talk and discuss, and I'd love to hear what you guys came up with. But more importantly, look at verse 29. Here is our evangelist. Here is this woman. She, she's overcoming barriers. The townspeople did not like her. That's why she had to go to the well at noon. All the other women went early in the morning. But at now, God has changed her heart, and she's heading into town to these people who don't like her, her own people, sharing the gospel, uh, proclaiming what this man had done in her heart. In fact, F.F. F. Bruce says this. He says, the wellspring of perennial refreshment was now bubbling up within her. What a beautiful picture. She has become the well of living water, and she's calling out to her fellow Samaritans, come and drink. Can this man be the Christ? And another important thing we need to know about Samaritans is they only recognize the first five books of the Old Testament, the ones that Moses wrote. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that's good, though, because there's an important... A Messiah prophecy in, in Deuteronomy 18 about the prophet. We've talked about that. The second Moses who's going to come and you should listen to him. And so they hung on to this. So the Samaritans were also expecting and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They called him Tahib. So that's essentially what she's saying is, can this be Tahib? Can this be the Messiah? He's told me everything uh, I've ever done. Now, a little exaggeration there, but she's excited. She's excited. And for the Samaritans also... Scholars tell us that they thought of Tahib as one who would come and reveal knowledge, would reveal truth, and also be the converter of the, of the nations. And so that's kind of in her question there. And then we see the people in verse 30. They went out and were coming. Were coming is imperfect there. So it tells us they were coming and they kept coming and kept coming. So there was, this is a large group of people now heading a half mile. By the way, the well's still there. All right, R.C. Sproul told me that in the sermon I was listening to. He's actually been there. It's at the, the foot of uh, Mount Ebel. It's, it's a half mile from this town where these people were. The town has a new name now. So we could all go on a field trip, if anyone wants to bankroll that, and we could go and see the well 4,000 years after it was dug. That's amazing. So they're coming a half mile in, and that's when the disciples come back. And that's where we're going to rejoin the text here in a moment. But let's, let's look at the, the big idea for today's passage. This is a very practical passage. If you're a note taker, you're going to be able to write down a lot of good practical points 
for evangelism. So here's the big idea, the sermon in a sentence. Today, we will learn several important principles that should frame our understanding and practice of biblical evangelism. And look, we just saw two of them. I put them up there for you. Uh, The most unlikely people can make the most effective evangelists, right? And then secondly, sharing the gospel will will require us to overcome barriers. So there's your first two. We're going to see several more. Uh, We're going to move very quickly through this passage so we can cover all of them. But before we do, let's return to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage. Oh, it's, it's the heart of the gospel is displayed in so many ways in John chapter four and just uh, how you come to break through the barriers that we in our sin create, stupid barriers, Lord God, and you break through all of them. If only we as a nation and as a world will realize there's only two categories of people in your economy, those who are perishing from birth and those who are being saved. Father, let us apply even that aspect of what we see here today, but even more so, let us leave here more emboldened and equipped to take our story, the story of our miraculous conversion through the gospel to others. We pray also for many in our church right now who are suffering with sickness, death, and other issues, uh, family members, and just pray you bless and comfort them as well during this time and, and be with us as we continue through this great passage. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so the first thing, the first principle for us is this, soul harvesting is Jesus's primary task. Notice I didn't put was, it is his primary task, and it has been since Genesis chapter three. That's the first prophecy of the gospel. It's very important for us to remember. Turn back a page or two to John 3, 17, and we see this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the mission. Let's rejoin the text at verse 31 and read here a few verses. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. So we'll stop there. Uh, Just a few uh, important things to point out here is that for Jesus Christ, his life here on earth was about the mission that God sent him to do. You might remember two weeks ago, I entitled the sermon, God the Apostle. Jesus Christ is an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. So essentially, that's what he's referring to here. I've been sent to do one thing, and I'm about that one thing. And that one thing is not focusing my life on the things that earth can give me. It's about the mission that the Father has given me to do. And you might remember an incredible verse, again from Deuteronomy, this time 8.3, a verse that Jesus uses when he's being tempted by Satan in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this is important for us because just as Jesus is doing here, we too should do in our lives. We need that reminder daily. I need that reminder daily that that God did not put me on this earth to focus primarily on the things that the earth can give me, right? They're there. They're grace. We need these things. But if you're saved, if you're in Christ today, God saved you and given you this very same mission to take the baton from Jesus 
and with his power, do the very same thing, the mission that we've been given. That's it, right? He didn't save us so we could go AWOL and go back uh, to our old life, so to speak. Very important. And some of you may have experienced this. I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip um, or maybe you've been teaching or, or preaching or sharing the gospel in the streets, and you're hungry physically, but then you get so into God's work that you forget about food. And then you see the time that goes by, and it's amazing. It's miraculous. I've experienced this before, uh, similar to what's happening here. Uh, God does strengthen and enable us still to do his work in those times. Even two weeks ago, last time I preached in front of you, I had just gotten off the plane the night before at 9 o'clock, coming from my stepmom's funeral in Florida. And I remember sitting right in that chair, and Micah was doing the final song, and I'm like, man, I am tired. I just want to go home and take a nap. And I prayed, Lord, give me strength. And he did. It was amazing. And that was a long sermon, too. So you know, he really did give me strength. You're like, man, come on, Lord. Make him tired. No, I'm kidding. But, but this is real. This is real. And just as it's, it's his, his primary task, it is ours, and God will strengthen us to do it. Look at this, uh, this quote here. The extent to which Scripture fills your mind and guides your prayers daily is the extent to which you will grow, receive spiritual nourishment, and be useful as a follower of Jesus Christ. All right, we're not legalists here, but we do need God's word daily for many reasons. Many reasons. And one of them is to be useful to him. We cannot give what we don't have. And that's what Paul calls the filling of the spirit as well. So there's the first thing that we see. But as we continue to move on, uh, let's pick up in verses 35 through 38. And here's where we see the second principle. Jesus invites us to join him in his task. This is the heart of today's passage. This is really where we get to, again, like I said earlier, see under the hood of God's kingdom economy and bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. So let's rejoin the text at verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into that layer, that labor. This passage is broken up with two proverbs. So that's what guides this passage, two ancient proverbs that Jesus is using here. The first one concerns the, the four months. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled. A lot of people have gotten upset here, right? Jesus doesn't know anything about agricultural because it takes six months for a seed to produce fruit. That's kind of the rule of thumb. Not four months, but ancient agricultural calendars were broken up into six, six two-month periods. And this is essentially referring to the two periods that are in between the end of the seed sowing time and the beginning of the harvest. That's all he's saying. And these two months, or these four months, these two periods in between seed sowing and harvest were known as the time of waiting. The time of waiting that required great patience because you had to let earth do its thing. You could not control it. You could not rush it. And so what Jesus is saying right here is the time for waiting is over. All right, the time for sitting down, sitting on your couch, waiting is over. The harvest has come in. And one thing about agriculture, anyone that's done any farming, you know that the, the time for seed sowing doesn't wait. You either take advantage of it or you're going to wait for a year. Same thing, the harvest doesn't wait. If you don't get that fruit off the tree, it will rot. So there's urgency in his words. 
And you can, if you imagine, again, that half-mile journey from the city to the well, you can imagine off in the distance the town people following the woman and in the background. You, it, it, and some of the movies do that, in fact, and that's probably what's happening here. You could see them coming, and he's essentially literally saying the, the fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. So as we dig into this passage a little bit, you'll see here an interesting wording that he uses. He says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit from eternal life. Who is Jesus talking about there? I believe he's talking about himself and lar- you know, larger, the triune Godhead. You could put Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yeah, God is doing his thing. He's already receiving wages. It's happening. In fact, it happened with the woman at the well, right? I believe she's already saved at this point. Uh, And and again, during this time, remember, it's an interesting time. We've talked about this in the book of Acts between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But I believe she's already saved. And and, and God is using her to bring all these people out. And then you see as he continues, this is where I believe uh, the invitation is. When you get down here at the end of verse 36, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. That's you and that's me. These are the roles that God has given us. Because what would sometimes happen is a sower gets jealous of the reaper, or maybe the reaper gets jealous of the sower. Imagine being a seed sower. All you're doing is casting seed, and yet others get to come, which seems like the more glorious time, and reap the harvest and gather the fruit. Uh, But no, God's saying both are equally important. What if God told you that this next year, in 2019, you would, you would be used to plant seeds in 12 people's hearts. But those 12 people would be harvested by another church and go on to join another church and not TCBR. Would you rejoice at the same level than if they joined here? You should. You should. We should rejoice. God is the one who brings the growth, but he invites us, those of you who are saved and in Christ, to come and join. And sometimes it's going to be seed sowing. Other times we might be blessed to be there for the harvest when that person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But the two roles are one. And then he gives us our second, our, his second proverb, proverb, if you will, in verse 37. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. That actually was used negatively. In fact, people may use it here today. Like you say to your kids when they do something bad, it's like, hey, man, you, you reap what you sow. It's usually used in a negative context. Uh, also, you could read Ecclesiastes. Solomon will use this principle in a negative way, like, like talking in, in a despairing term. Like I, He's talking about himself. I, do, I, I fill my barns and get all this wealth only to die and have someone else spend it. So it's similar to that as well. But here Jesus is putting a positive spin on it. One sows and another reaps. Praise God. Because it's him and him alone that brings the growth. In fact, look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, This is very important, and, and it connects well to what we're looking at today. Paul's talking. He says, I planted, again, talking about gospel seeds, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. There's a lot of division in this church, right? People said, oh, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. Paul's trying to destroy all that because they need to be of God and God alone. And that's where he says here in verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So here's some application for us. This is very simple. If we boil down our role in evangelism, 
the three simple things. Scattering gospel seeds. A prayer that we should pray every day before leaving the house. God, give me the opportunity to cast gospel seeds today. All right? In my relationships, with strangers, coworkers, neighbors, whatever. Even on social media. Lord, give me the opportunity to cast gospel seeds. And then second, praying for gospel harvest. Praying. And if you're anything like me, there's too many things to pray about in one day. Uh, so what I've done is, I think I've shared this with you before, I've, I've categorized my request, and I have a different category for each day of the week. And uh, Thursdays is a day where I'm praying for the salvation of every non-family member that I know who's lost that uh, you know, might be part of our church or somebody I've met in the community or someone at one of the schools uh, or, or friends from high school or whatever. I pray for all those people. You should as well. Friday, by the way, is the day I pray for all my lost family members. So, and then even Tuesdays is the day I pray for our politicians. And that, that's a long list, you know, and, and all the people in the government. So find days where you can pray in certain categories for those who are lost. And then finally, and this is important, be available for gospel harvest. If your life is anything like mine, we're busy. We're very busy. And sometimes I think we miss opportunities that God will give to others to be there for the harvest. So, so be available for gospel harvest and even pray that. Lord, help me to recognize these divine encounters that you've put into my life each day, not be so busy that I miss it. All right, so there's the first two. Here's the third one, verses 39 through 42. This is the final section in the Samaritan narrative. But this is very important. Jesus uses our testimony and his word to save. Let's pick back up in verse 39 and read through 42. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two more days. And many more believed, here it is, because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What an incredible passage. And let me tell you something. The idea of a Samaritan town asking a Jewish rabbi to stick around for two more days, unheard of. All right, that's not going to happen. In fact, you can read Luke 9, where uh, there was another Samaritan town, you might remember. Uh, This is near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, on on the way up to Jerusalem, where he will soon die. And he sends a couple apostles ahead to prepare the town for him, and they're like, we don't want you here. And that's where John and James wanted to call down fire from heaven to, to take it out. That's, that's a Samaritan town as well. So, so that's normal. This is not normal. This is an evidence of the work of God's grace to change hearts and bring many to faith, saving faith in Christ. In fact, if you look at verse 39, it says that they believed in him. This is absolute faith. This isn't surfacy faith like what we, we saw back in chapter 2 and what we'll see here in a few moments. Uh, you know, the, the, the skin-deep insincere, shallow faith. That's, that's not this. This is absolute saving faith. And then you see the two statements, the two because of statements, because of the woman's testimony and because of the word of Jesus Christ. We should think in terms of the gospel there. And that's so important for us. You, if you again are saved, if you are sitting here today, a born again individual, you have a story. And you see, we live on the other side of, of decades of heretical Christianity right here in the Bible Belt. 
that has cheapened grace, that has cheapened the gospel, that has made it a simple transaction like joining a gym, right, for the sake of numbers and big churches. And talking about it makes me sick. We have lost sight of the fact that the greatest miracle that can ever happen on the face of earth is when a dead heart is transformed and made alive. It's the greatest miracle. Grow a limb back, you know, food from rocks, okay, that's cool. But there's no greater miracle than one heart coming to faith. And we have to recapture that. That's what good theology does. We have to get back to that and believe that in terms of celebrating what he's done in our life and then being motivated to take our story and share it with all those who come in our path. You don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to complete a 12-week evangelism class. You've got a story. Go tell it. And as you're telling it, learn to incorporate the Word of God. Learn to incorporate passages like this and so many others in John's Gospel. Even if you just have a few, bring them in to help someone understand what God has done. And if you forget about the importance of God's Word, well, here I have two verses to remind you, two of my favorites. Look on the slide, you'll see both of these are from Paul. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then in uh, 2 Timothy, Paul's reminding Timothy of his own conversion and how from childhood you you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So our story and God's word are the two weapons we have been given to break through the darkness of sin. And we've got to use them. We've got to utilize them. And if you don't have a story, come and talk to me because the chances are you might not be saved, right? You might be depending on something else for your salvation and not the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, second, secondly, uh, in, in terms of application, and this, this is a word to, to kids in here, to children. I know we have some teenagers and some young children. This is important. Look at verse 42. This is an important verse. I first heard this in 1996. I was a brand new Christian. I was volunteering with Vacation Bible School for the first time. I'll never forget, I I led the little group around to each room, and we walked into the Bible room, and the pastor's wife, that was the verse of the day, and it hit me, where they say, we no longer believe because of what you say. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Children in this room, I believe, I know in a couple cases, are being raised with the gospel because of how God saved me, for example, as a father. But children, at some point, this has to happen for you as well, where you say, mom and dad, I no longer believe because you've raised me, because you say it. I have come to know that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world myself. What an important verse uh, as we're continuing to raise our children, both in terms of our ministry, but also in your homes as parents. That's a great one to take note of. And to use. And you see that great, again, the final words of our Samaritan story here that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, this is Samaritans were expecting this one, Tahib, to come and he would be the converter of nations. But think about what they're saying here. These are the half breeds. I, one time, when I was helping to plant a church many years ago, 15 years ago, down in Florida, I met a man. He worked at like Office Depot and he was a Jamaican albino. So he had the dreadlocks, but they were blonde. Again, he's of African descent, but he was white. 
And as I got to know him, we became friends, and he, he shared with me and helped me with a perspective I'd never thought of, that he was treated funny by both white people and his own family members. He was treated. So he was very much like the Samaritans, where no one liked him. And yet here they are saying, Savior of the world, something God's people, the Jews, couldn't even do. That's profound, that's powerful, and it's evidence that we're looking at one of the greatest one-day revivals in a town where these people come to faith in Christ. Uh, Scholars wonder, and I wonder too, if this is not the same town that Philip would later go to in Acts chapter 8. Again, another Samaritan town. How beautiful is this? And we're going to talk more about it as we continue. But let's look at the fourth one, and that's going to be verses 43 for 45. You'll see it on the screen. Shallow and insincere faith is counterfeit faith, right? Now, something you need to know about 43 and 45 is uh, John's doing something similar that he's already done. If you remember the end of chapter 2, right after Jesus cleansed the temple and right before Nick at night, when he has that conversation with Nicodemus, we see a passage very similar to this where John is exposing for us counterfeit faith. Now, what's interesting is, is both verses point back to the same event, and it was the week of Passover unleavened bread during the temple cleansing, right, where, where he, he went on to share and preach and do some miracles in Jerusalem. And, and several people saw the miracles and now are willing to give him the time of day. Like, okay, cool. Yeah, a little Jesus magic. We like that. And so at first he was talking about the Jews in Jerusalem in chapter 2, setting us up for Nicodemus, because Nicodemus was one of those people that had a shallow kind of faith, but not faith like we just saw with the Samaritans. And now he's telling us the same thing about another group of people. So let's read verses 43 through 45. After the two days in Samaria, he departed for Galilee. So he's heading back north. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his, home, in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So I told you guys a long time ago that one thing that John does throughout his account is he assumes that we've read one of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And this is one of those instances, because something we see at the beginning of each of those those four gospels, or three gospels, is when Jesus went back to Nazareth to declare himself the Messiah, and they wanted to throw him off the hill and kill him. And that's where he says this statement originally. So that's probably already happened in John's timeline. And so now he's heading back to Galilee for the second time since his ministry has begun. And so what he's telling us about these people is they wanted to throw him off a mountain last time he was here. But now, because they saw him do some Jesus magic in Jerusalem, yeah, come on, come on. We're all about that. But again, it's a surfacy, insincere, skin-deep type of faith. Now, why is John doing this? Why is he putting this in here? And I'll tell you what I believe, is he is contrasting the insincere faith of the Jerusalem Jews and now the Galilean Jews, who were God's people, with what's just happened in the middle in Samaria. That these people who didn't have the miracles, now granted, the woman had some secrets from her heart revealed, but besides that, That's what was missing in Samaria. There was no miracles. They believed because of one woman, one prostitute's testimony. And then the teaching of Jesus Christ. These half-breeds, these outcasts. When the Jews who had God's word and had the law and had the temple and had Jerusalem could only muster shallow faith. 
when they saw him do some miracles. That's what John's doing. He's wanting to bring out even more this miracle of conversion that's happened in Samaria to these people for the glory of God. God can use you and I and our story to break through so many barriers of sin and doubt to change one heart. We should be encouraged by this passage. Encouraged. Uh, Here's a passage that plays off of this well, again from 1 Corinthians. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What a beautiful Beautiful chapter we have here in John 4. A few application points here is, again, this brings us here to Greenville, South Carolina, our context, which drives me crazy. There's been so much false teaching in this area for decades that like 80% of the people will say, yeah, I'm a Christian. They'll even give you the date they prayed a prayer or something, right? But we don't see it. If I had to guess, I would say maybe it's more like 25% of the people in Greenville, maybe even less, are true believers. Because we've had three false gospels preached here for far too long. We've had the, uh, the legalistic gospel, the gospel of behavioral moralism, which is a false gospel. These men who preach this are heretics. We've had the liberal gospel. I mean, even today, First Baptist Greenville was one of the founding churches of the Southern Baptist Convention in the mid-1800s. Today, it's not even a church much less Baptists. It's one step from Unitarian Universalism. In fact, when they get mad at First Baptists, they go to the Unitarian Universalist Church. That's next on down. And they've been preaching a gospel of social improvement for so long, social moralism. And then even, we've become masters of it in our denomination, but the conservative American consumeristic church. Again, mile-wide, inch-deep, a gospel of purpose-driven moralism. And I, and I say all this just to let us know that we have a lot of this happening here. Again, because we've cheapened grace, we've watered down the gospel all for the sake of numbers, success, money, and bragging rights. We should be ashamed of ourselves. And I used to be part of that, by the way. That's where I was coming out of seminary a long time ago. God rescued me as I began to read the Bible. When I left seminary in 2003, my evangelism style was that of a salesperson. My job was to convince people of something, get them to sign the dotted line and close the deal and notch my belt. But we see today, it's not about us. It's about the Father who is the one fulfilling the great commission in his planting and his watering and his harvesting of souls to bring them to faith in Christ so that he gets all the glory and we get the joy of being used by him and experiencing his grace. And if we're unfaithful, He's going to use someone else to bring that person to Christ because he's sovereign. All right, we'll see the final principle. This is going to go really quick. It's this final passage. We're not going to read the whole thing, but this is our second miracle of Cana. And and I've told this here, and this corresponds with the fourth point. Absolute faith in Christ is both provided and required by God. And if you look at this passage, this is, again, the second miracle in Cana. Our little mini-series here started with the first miracle in Cana. So the miracles in Cana serve as bookends for chapters 2 through 4. 
And what's happening here is we're going to see a miniature version of what happened in Samaria with this one man. Uh, so what's happening here is Jesus head back, head, head back to Cana, right? And a man from Capernaum, an official, he probably worked for the king, his son's dying. He hears that Jesus is in town. Of course, people are talking about him because they were at Jerusalem. This dude gets on a horse, goes 20 miles to Cana, finds Jesus, and pleads with him to come with him to heal his son. And that's where we pick up in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, seems a little harsh, but it's a test, trust me. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Again, he's tired of the counterfeit shallow faith. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Capernaum is 700 feet below sea level. So whenever you're talking about Capernaum, it's come down. Come down before he dies. And look what Jesus says. Go, your son will live. And here's where we see faith. You want to see what real faith looks like? Here it is. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. He doesn't say, no, 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 you don't understand. You've got to come. If you don't come, he won't. He says, okay. Takes him at his word, and he leaves. Not only that, he waits 24 hours to go back home. It's only 20 miles, right? Even if he was walking, that's about a six-hour walk. He probably had a horse, though, because he was an official, so a fraction of that time. But he doesn't go back home, because look, you continue with the narrative. It says the next day he asked his servants what time the fever left him, and it was at the seventh hour, the same exact time the day before that Jesus said he will live. That was about one o'clock in the afternoon. So where did he go? I don't know. He probably had some business to do. Maybe he spent the night in Cana. But he trusted and he took Jesus at his word, just like the woman at the well, just like the Samaritans. This is sincere faith in Jesus Christ. But then look what happens. Look what happens back at home. Pick up in verse 53. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself, emphatically now, he himself believed the gospel. He had already believed Jesus. Now God saves him. And not only that, his family, his household gets saved as well. You know what this man did? He told his story. He told his story and the words of Jesus Christ. And the entire home now gets saved. You get a microcosm of what happened in Samaria. And so before we end this, I want to circle back to the point. We have to understand that saving faith in Jesus Christ is provided by God. It's a gift. Again, Nicodemus, born again. But it's also required by God. And you might complain about that. You might say, you know what, that doesn't make sense. How does God have the right to make it that way? Well, that's what the Bible teaches. And we've got to maintain that balance. And churches get in trouble when they don't. And there's plenty of them. They go too much to the one side where God provides salvation uh, what we call hyper-Calvinism, where they, they don't do mission, they don't do evangelism, they close, close, close themselves off, and they don't want lost people coming in. Or they go too far to the other side, where they, again, the salesman type evangelism. We've got to stay balanced in the middle. And if you don't like it, read chapter 9. I'm sorry, read cha Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is where God pretty much says, hey, you're a pile of clay, I'm the potter, stay in your lane, I've got this, right? This is how it is. We have to take God at his word. So we're going to end with one final passage. This takes us back to the prologue of John where we, we see both of these truths brought out. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And when we understand that and believe it, guess who gets all the glory? And that's why we sing. And we're going to continue singing here in a few moments. But before we do, just a reminder, this is now the end of uh, the third space. And again, we see several examples of Jesus going out in third space and engaging men and women with the gospel. And next week, we will begin the new mini-series. It's going to take us through the end of May, chapters 5 through 10. I've entitled it, The Word of the Lord. We see the Word of the Lord rise to the surface as, as Jesus is, is teaching and, and confronting the false religion of the Pharisees in, in uh, Judea, as well as the Sadducees. And if you haven't picked one up yet, our new notebooks are ready. Uh, there's some back there on that table. There's also some by the door. So make sure you get your new cell group sermon note notebook, because that will begin this upcoming week as we begin chapter five uh, next week. And then again, just an invitation to you, and, and I'll invite the band to come back up at this point as we continue to worship in song, but uh, I'm available. I'm available. If you've got some questions about evangelism and want to talk about how you can better share your faith, please call me, because I know I'm going to get better at sharing my faith by talking to you. Right? It's a mutual benefit. Um, if you're here today and you're not sure about where you are with God, whether you're an adult or a child, whether you've been part of our church for a while or you're a guest, please come and talk to us this morning. The invitation is always open. Uh, I'll be back there in a few moments. You can even come talk to me while we're still singing or get my information and maybe we'll have coffee this week. But want to share this with you and want to help those of you who are believers uh, form and shape your story of the miracle that's happened in your heart that God wants to use to break through the darkness in Blue Ridge and around the world. Let's pray. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for all that you teach us from this great chapter in terms of evangelism. And the reality is we're busy. And I think that's, that's my problem, and I think that's all of our problems to some extent. We're busy, we're distracted. But that does not relieve us of our responsibility to share the gospel, Lord. The Church of Blue Ridge doesn't exist to provide a quality Sunday morning experience each week. We exist to make disciples here in Blue Ridge and around the world with your gospel and for your glory. Help us to that end to be faithful. Bless our four missional community groups as they continue to get out into the community to meet people, to share Christ. Help us to imitate you, Lord, and what we've seen in these three chapters, this third space concept of, of getting out of our comfort zones of, of the church building and our homes and finding those third spaces where, where people gather, that we can build relationships and engage people with the love of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for those in this room who don't know you or have questions and doubts in terms of the, their eternity. Give them the courage to step forth, maybe talk to a parent, Maybe talk to a missional community group leader. Maybe come and talk to one of us pastors that we can share with them accurately the things of Christ and how your gospel has changed our life. Let us learn to tell our story, to tell our story well, and use our stories of your grace coupled with the gracious and awesome word of God and the gospel from the pages of scripture to break through the darkness and bring many men, women, and children in this community to Jesus. Father, we'll take the brokenhearted. We'll take the down and out. We'll take those like the Samaritans who, who are outcast and who are unwanted because they don't look right, dress right, smell right, 
have the right skin color, have the right economic level. Those are the people that we want here at the Church of Blue Ridge, the marginalized. Thank you, Lord God, that you save the low and despised and the weak. We should all amen that because we are that. But no longer because of Christ and because of your spirit. As we continue to sing, be glorified by the words of our heart. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.